0: If you have your Bible, please turn, if you would, to the Gospel of Mark, Chapter 11. And we're going to read a few verses here together in a moment. hope you have your Bible, and if not, just follow along and uh, maybe look on next to you. It's an exciting passage of Scripture in the portion that we'll cover today. Uh, just a lot of information and different applications, and we'll try to make it as practical as we can for our lives, as well as informative concerning what was transpiring and taking place in the life and the ministry of Jesus and His disciples. Mark chapter 11, and if you're able to stand with us, please stand for the Word of God as we read it, Uh, following along in your Bible as I read Mark chapter 11, beginning in verse 1, it says, And when they came nigh to Jerusalem unto Bethphage and Bethany, at the Mount of Olives, he sendeth forth two of his disciples and saith unto them, Go your way into the village over against you. And as soon as you be entered into it, you shall find a colt tied, whereon never man sat. Loose him and bring him. And if any man say unto you, Why do you this? Say ye, that the Lord hath need of him and straightway he will send him hither and they went their way and found the colt tied by the door without in a place where two ways met and they loose him and certain of them that stood there said unto them what do ye loosing the colt they said unto them even as Jesus had commanded and they let them go And they brought the colt to Jesus and cast their garments on him and he sat upon him. And many spread their garments in the way and others cut down branches off the trees and strawed them in the way. And they that went before and they that followed cried saying, Hosanna, blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. Blessed be the kingdom of our father David that cometh in the name of the Lord, Hosanna in the highest. And Jesus entered into Jerusalem and into the temple. And when he had looked round about upon all these things, and now the eventide was come, he went out unto Bethany with the twelve. Thank you. You may be seated. We have been following this journey of Jesus Uh, From Galilee, northern Galilee, uh, from Caesarea Philippi, the northernmost part of the region that Jesus ever traveled to, and we've been following for many weeks now. He's made his way southward through Galilee, over on the east side of the Jordan River, coming down the Jordan River. Last week we covered as he came into Jericho, which is on the west side of the Jordan River, about 15 to 17 miles from Jerusalem. Jerusalem. And there on the western side of Jericho, where he met this blind Barnabas sitting on the roadside and, and gave him his sight. Now we find him through that rocky region that we showed last week, coming into, first of all, Bethany, and then Bethphage, and then into Jerusalem. So we've been following this. Verse 1, verse one of chapter 11 says they came nigh to Jerusalem, near to Jerusalem. I want to say a word or two uh, before we get into the text about the harmony of the Gospels. You know, the Bible, the New Testament, gives us four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And all the Gospels do not include every event that took place. And when they record events, they don't all have exactly the same details. That does not mean either of them or any of them are inaccurate or even incomplete. But it does tell us if we'll put those four Gospels together as a whole and look at all of them, we get a fuller picture. Uh, I have a resource that I've used for years. Uh, It's actually on my computer software, but you can buy the book called A Harmony of the Gospels, where you can see as you read along where all four of these Gospels are harmonized. I'll give you an example, for instance. Last week we talked about the healing of blind Barnabas outside the western side of the city of Jericho. In Luke's gospel, he records that after that, uh, Zacchaeus was saved. You know the story of Zacchaeus and how he climbed up in the sycamore tree. That is recorded only in the gospel of Luke. And we're going to talk about where Jesus now goes to Bethany and to Bethphage and down into, over into Jerusalem. And, but John records in his gospel that, that Mary and Martha's house was on the way and Jesus went into Mary and Martha's house before he went into Jerusalem. All I'm saying is... You know, you can't cover all of these different things in all the Gospels. If we were teaching or preaching uh, the, the life of Christ, we might harmonize all those. But I say all that in introduction because we're going to look at a few other passages today that have to do with the same period of time. The villages we're introduced to, again, in verse 1, are Bethphage, or Bethphage and Bethany. They're very near proximity to Jerusalem. Uh... Actually, Bethany is about three miles or so from Jerusalem. And the other smaller village, Bethphage, is about two miles or in between them. Let's look at a few maps, as we often do on Sunday morning. And I don't have the maps to look at behind you, so I'm going to look up here with you. And this is, um, that's the beautiful map. (laughs) We can pretty much memorize everything that's up there so far. Um, The first one is a larger map that kind of shows the the big picture that we've been talking about now for weeks. And that is how that Jesus made this journey down to, um, on the eastern side of the Jordan River, then across to Jericho. We have it? Good. Okay, thank you, men. Um, So you see in the green there, he's coming southward. He's on the eastern side of the Jordan River. He crosses over into Jericho, and we were there last week. And now he's going to go in. And by the way, look down here at the bottom right at the scale. That's 20 miles. So you can see there from Jericho into Jerusalem. It's about 15 to 17 miles. He'll go through Bethany and Bethphage on the way. I think the next map is a little closer up where you can actually see some highlights, some places. Uh, he came, he'll come through Bethany into Bethphage. You'll notice right under the word, Bethphage, there is the Mount of Olives, a very familiar place in the Bible. And he will, he will begin to descend from the Mount of Olives and go through the area where the Garden of Gethsemane was that Jesus frequently visited. It's going down. He'll cross the Kidron Valley there. you see that Kidron Valley there? And then he will go into the Eastern Gate, the Golden Gate, the Eastern Gate, into the the old city walls, into the city of Jerusalem. And just inside those city walls would be the temple. Let's look at a couple of other photos if we could. Here's a picture from a distance. If you were, my wife and I have been there twice, if you were on the Mount of Olives, this is what you would see across the Kidron Valley. And by the way, it's called the Mount of Olives because of all the olive trees. You see across that uh, Kidron Valley, and you see the gates, the eastern gates, you see them at the top, and they're closed. Have been closed for four or five hundred years. Uh, let's look at another photo if you could, please. This is showing the picture today from the Mount of Olives, from the Garden of Gethsemane area, across the Kidron Valley, and just behind the eastern gate, you see the Dome of the Rock, the Muslim Mosque, and uh, which... Um, is so prominent. In Jesus' day, you would have seen the temple sitting in that very place, large, beautiful, magnificent structure. Here's a picture. If you were standing at the eastern gate looking toward Bethphage and Bethany, what you'd see here is the, the Mount of Olives. So that's what the Mount of Olives actually looks like. You see all the olive trees, the greenery, you see that structure kind of in the middle to the left. Just above that would be the Garden of Gethsemane. Some people never look at maps or look at uh, things of this nature. But it helps me put things into perspective. When you think about being in Jerusalem, how far would it be for Jesus to go to uh, the Garden of Gethsemane? Not very far. Just a walk. Just a few minutes you could be there. And this is a close-up look at the Eastern Gate. And one thing you notice, it's like a graveyard. It is a graveyard. Those are all... Muslim graves uh, really designed to desecrate this holy place to the Jewish people and to us as well. So anyway, just a little geography lesson. A little bit of pictures there to help you. And uh, again, those gates are closed. Ezekiel actually wrote about the fact in his prophecy that those gates would be closed and that they will for the prince uh, to go through and one day they'll be open again. And Jesus will go into Jerusalem through those gates. Let's think about those villages now, as we talked earlier in our text in Mark chapter 11. Bethany is, a, is really, to me, one of the most uh, familiar villages in the region. Because that's where Mary and Martha and Joseph, uh, Lazarus lived. When Jesus visited their family, he would visit them there in Bethany. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask you to do something for us at this time. And hold your finger there in Mark chapter 11... And let's take and turn to the right to the gospel of John. And I just want to notice a few things that John reveals about the time and the place uh, where we're reading about in Mark. In John chapter 12, he gives us an exact timeline, and I want to notice that in some other things. John chapter 12 and verse 1 Says Then Jesus, six days before the Passover, came to Bethany. So there we have an exact timeline. Six days before the Passover. Less than a week from the time that Jesus will be crucified, Jesus and this group of people pass through uh, Bethany where Lazarus was, it says in verse 1, which had been dead, whom he raised from the dead. And so, the, past, the verses that follow this, and we 're not going to get, dive into that today because that's not our primary purpose. this talks about when Martha the, and Mary were there and they're preparing a meal, and Mary takes this pound of spike nerd, very expensive and she she wiped she anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet uh, with her hair and uh, just a very wonderful moment that's taking place prior to Jesus making his way on toward Jerusalem. One thing I want to notice while we're in John's gospel is John recorded, uh, the apostle John recorded uh, how this opposition toward Jesus and the disciples is just mounting. Let me just point out a couple of things. First of all, in John chapter 11 and verse 55, it says, "...and the Jews' Passover was nigh at hand." And many went out of the country up to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. John, a first hand witness of what was taking place. Verse 56 says, Then sought they for Jesus and spake among themselves and they stood as they stood in the temple. What think ye that he will not come to the feast? They're, they're, they're speculating, they're the murmur murmuring in the city about whether jesus would come to passover verse 57 says now both the chief priests and the pharisees had given a commandment that if any man knew where he were where jesus was he should show it that they might take him so you i think it's just important to realize they're going to enter in, in a moment we're going to read about it in mark about this great moment of triumph and exultation and adoration for the king uh, who's come, but in, this, in the background, behind the scenes, there's this animosity growing, this, this hatred for Jesus and for not only for Jesus, but also for Lazarus, it says, because he had raised him from dead. Look in chapter 12 of John now in verse, uh, verse 10. It says, but the chief priests consulted that they might put Lazarus also to death. Because that by reason of him, because of Lazarus and his testimony, many of the Jews went away and believed on Jesus. So you've got all this this drama taking place there as we're about to read as Jesus makes his way toward Jerusalem. And I want to notice a couple of other things because I want to answer a question that maybe, maybe or maybe you haven't thought of this. And that is, how much did the disciples now, we've, talked, we've documented this now for weeks, how clueless they really were about what was taking place. But now they're getting close to Jerusalem. How much do they know now? Let's read a few verses it'll shed some light on that. We're in John chapter 12, and look in verse 12. On the next day, much people that were come to the feast, when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, took branches of palm trees and went forth to meet him and cried, Hosanna, blessed is the king. We read that a moment ago in Mark. We'll go back to that in Mark in just a moment. But just follow down just a little bit and look in verse 16. These things understood not his disciples at the first, but when Jesus was glorified, after he was crucified, after he was risen from the dead, then remembered they that these things were written of him and that they had done these things unto him. So again, the disciples are still not able to connect the dots. One last thing we'll look at in John's gospel there in 12 before we go back to Mark. Look down in verse 19. It says, the Pharisees therefore, this is the religious crowd, the Pharisees therefore said among themselves, perceive ye how ye prevail nothing? Behold the world has gone after him. They're just full of envy, jealousy, animosity toward Jesus. So let's go back now to the gospel of Mark and and look again in chapter 11 and verse 1 where it says, As they neared to Jerusalem, they drew nigh to Jerusalem, he sendeth forth two of his disciples, verse 2, and said unto them, Go your way into the village over against you. And as you be entered in into it, you shall find a colt tied whereon never man sat. Loose him and bring him. So this is, this is the entrance of Jesus finally getting to Jerusalem um, and what's about to take place uh, was prophesied some 450 years before in the book of Zechariah. Can we see that scripture in Zechariah? Let's look at that and that way you don't have to turn to it. Notice what it says. Rejoice greatly. This is written hundreds and hundreds of years before Jesus uh, was incarnate. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Uh, The daughter, (laughs) O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, thy king cometh unto thee. He is just, having salvation, lowly, riding upon an ass, and upon a colt, the... um, Bowl of an ass. What a, what a great prophecy! This is actually going to be played out before us here as we read our text. And so Jesus sends these two disciples into a village, and it tells us that that village in another place in Matthew that that village is Bethphage. He goes into that village, and this is what he said: When you go into the village, you're going to find a colt tied tied up, and when you find him, you're going to loose him. And bring him to us. And in verse 3 he says, if anybody questions you about this, if anybody says, why do you this? Then you just tell them the Lord needs him. The Lord hath need of him. And straightway, immediately, he will send him hither. This is a tremendous uh, story. Um, And I've wondered about it many times. Um, Imagine what it would have been like what it would have been like to be one of those disciples. Jesus said, just put yourself in that place. I'm going to send two of you, and I'm going to send you over to this nearest village, and as soon as you walk in, you're going to see this uh, little donkey, and he's going to be tied up, and just go up there and loose him and bring him with you. And if anybody questions you about it, just say, the Lord needs him, and that's all it'll take. And he'll come. they'll come, and I, I've thought about that. I've thought about what it would be like. I like to imagine what it might have been like walking along with that other disciple and I can just hear myself saying you know how are we going to know it's the right one and what if they, what if they won't let us take him what if they arrest us for stealing him <laughs> and so but sure enough these disciples go these two disciples they walk in and he and tells us that it was a place where two paths met two roads met there was this animal tied up just like Jesus said it would be. And they loosed him just like Jesus told them to. And they began to walk away, and they stopped him and said, you know, what do you think you're doing, taking our burrow? And they said, but the Lord needs him. And they said, okay, that's all we need to know. You can have him. Um, to me, this is a great testimony there's so much in this passage today that I'd like for us to think about. But this is such a great testimony, really, to the providence of God. Amen. To the character of God. To the, 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 the power of God. God's, let's think, think about this phrase we covered in a lesson a few weeks ago on God's character. But his omniscience. I mean, God knew. Jesus knew exactly where that donkey would be. And knew that he would be tied up and knew there would be people observing, and knew that they would ask, what are you doing taking my animal? And knew that all he had to say was, the Lord needs him, and that would be good enough. Uh, I love the language in the Gospel of Luke, we'll not turn to it, but this is what Luke said, Uh, the disciples said that they, here's the quote, found even even as he said unto them. They found it, think about these words, they found that it happened just exactly the way Jesus said it would happen. And by the way, if you think about it, it'll always be that way. If the Lord says it, it's going to be that way. If the Lord said it's going to be a certain way, it'll be that way. And to me, I find great encouragement in this, that God can be trusted. You can trust God. You may not know, you may not see, you may even wonder, but how can this take place? How is this going to happen? How will God meet this need? If God said he would, it'll happen just like God said that it would. Somehow, this owner knew that the the Lord had a right to claim his animal. Now, you may think, well, that's not a very big deal. It's just a donkey. Well... It was probably a pretty big deal to them. It'd be like your car you have parked out there on the parking lot. Somebody says, the Lord needs that. That's all I need to know. Here's the keys. <laughs> I'm challenged by it, really. I think it's an example for all of us. And here's, the, here's one of the things we learn throughout the scriptures that's affirmed in this passage, and that is this. We're not the owners of our possessions. God is. We're just the stewards. And if God needs something that He has given us, something that would be valuable to Him, then we ought to always be willing to let God have it. And so verse 7 tells us that they brought the colt to Jesus and cast their garments on Him, and He sat upon this colt. This is such a moment. Um, The king is about to enter into Jerusalem, the king, the long-awaited Messiah, the promised descendant of David, who will one day set up a kingdom that will reign forever. This is a, such a moment for us today to look at. The Bible says in verse 8, they began to spread their garments in the way. And others cut down branches off the trees and strawed them in the way. So they're spreading these ...garments and branches. Um, apparently this was a custom in Israel. My wife and I have been reading in the Old Testament in our daily reading. and When Jehu was anointed as the king of Israel... ...the Bible says that they, they hasted and brought every man his garment... And put it on the top of the stairs and blew their trumpets saying, Jehu is king. So this is not the only time we see this. This was a part of their understanding, a part of their culture. Now again, let's just step back for a moment. And imagine what must have been on the minds of all these people. As Jesus is on this animal, he's making his way into Jerusalem. And what are they thinking? What are the different... And there's so many different uh, segments of people in this group. There are people from way up in Galilee, these disciples and others who've traveled this great distance as Passover time. Included in the group, we know there are Pharisees and enemies and those who are antagonistic toward Jesus. But it's also, clue uh, uh, to me certain, it's also obvious that many of these people believed he was the Messiah. They knew, they believed in their heart that he was the king. And as Jesus is riding this animal, fulfilling the prophecy we looked at earlier from Zechariah, he's identifying himself as Israel's king. The the fulfillment of that prophecy of the Old Testament, the Messiah that would come. And we can also assume this, safely assume this, that many of these people believed he was about to take his rightful place as the descendant of David who would reign in Jerusalem. They believed that with all their heart. Now two things that Matthew gives us, from his gospel gives us, is he called this crowd a very great multitude. So you've got to put that in. If you're trying to visualize this, you got to put that into the equation. And he also wrote this, Matthew did, all the city was moved. It's, I don't know that anybody knows what the population of Jerusalem was at that time, but many people think it was around 80,000 people. So it was, it was buzzing around the city. Who's causing all this commotion? Who's this man coming in on this donkey? Why are these people doing what they're doing? And so it says, all the city was moved saying, who is this? And the multitude around Jesus said, this is Jesus, the prophet of Nazareth of Galilee. In our text, if you look there in our text, in verse 9 it says, and they that went before, before Jesus, and they that followed, those who were coming after cried saying, Hosanna. Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. Blessed be the kingdom of our father David that cometh in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. I mean, this is just a moment of triumphant praise. And they're saying, the word they're used there, and this word is found several times in the Gospels, always about this event. The word Hosanna Hosanna means, oh, save, or save now. In other words, this is their moment. He's going to save them. Jesus is coming to save saved the oppressed nation of Israel. And many of the Jews thought this moment would never come, and now they feel like it's finally come. And there's this messianic overtone of what they said in verse 10 when they said, Blessed be the kingdom of our father David that cometh in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. One of the things that stands out to me about this is, do you notice who's really giving Jesus the praise that he deserves? It wasn't the religious crowd. It wasn't these power-hungry Pharisees or scribes. No, it was this, this heartfelt, spontaneous worship was coming from this common group of firm, committed believers in Jesus Christ. And one thing that stands out to me is quite a contrast. You know, as we've been going through the Gospel of Mark, you'll remember that numerous times when people would identify Jesus as the Messiah or the Christ, for instance, at Caesarea Philippi, when Peter gave that great announcement, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus said, don't be telling people about that. He kind of kept this thing under a, a, a lid for most of the time, always before. He tried to quench any fires of messianic enthusiasm. But now the king, Jesus, at the right time, in the right way, according to his plan, is being seen. This is what I see in this. Jesus for the first time, was allowing himself to be declared the king of Israel. And it was at this point and I, it's, to me it's so valuable, I don't want to miss this it was at this point when Luke was writing about it in his gospel, Luke, Luke said that the Pharisees came to Jesus and said, "Rebuke thy disciples." All this hollering, all this shouting all this praise, all this adoration. Rebu- the word is, rebuke thy disciples. And this is what Jesus said. I tell you, if these should hold their peace, the stones would immediately cry out. This was not just a moment for a small group of Jewish people. This is the moment that all history has pointed toward. The need for a Savior, the coming of the Messiah, his entrance into Jerusalem. And something else that Luke wrote that I want to mention because it's not recorded in Mark's Gospel. This is what he said. Luke says, "After, after they had gotten the animal, after they had put their garments on the animal, after Jesus was seated on this beast, after they were putting these branches of trees and clothing in the way. And after he started in the direction of Jerusalem, this is what Luke wrote. And I think we need to remember this. It says, Jesus came near, beheld the city, and wept over it. You know, as we were looking at that photograph earlier of standing on the Mount of Olives and seeing in the distance the city of Jerusalem, The gates around the city, the eastern gate at that time opened, crossing over the... You have such a beautiful view. Again, it it is an amazing thing to stand there and just be able to look at that panoramic view of the city of Jerusalem. But it says that he, he, when all this shouting and praising and worship is going on, he beheld the city and wept over it. And not only did Luke say that he wept over it, but Luke actually records his words concerning the city, and I'm going to read them for you. Jesus said about the city of Jerusalem, If thou hadst known, even thou, at least in this thy day, the things which belong unto thy peace. He said, If you just knew what was happening right now. But now they are hid from thine eyes. For the day shall come upon thee that thine enemies shall cast a trench about thee, and compass thee round, and keep thee in on every side, and shall lay thee even with the ground, and thy children within thee, and they shall not leave in thee one stone upon another. And by the way, that would occur in less than 40 years when the Roman government destroyed the city of Jerusalem and the walls there. And this is the last thing he said to them, because thou knewest not the time of thy visitation. Now why do I mention that? Because I think it's, a, it's important for us not only to try to imagine and try to think about what the disciples were thinking and what the crowd was thinking, the antagonists were thinking, but how, what, was Jesus, what was Jesus' perspective? What was Jesus' view? And this is what we see. Is Jesus surrounded by this group of zealous supporters? Jesus looked at the city and wept over it. We see his compassion. He, he looked at the city, beheld the city. He wept over the blindness. He says, You can't see, these things are hid from you. He, he wept over the blindness. He wept over their pending judgment. This is is the Jesus of the Bible. We see his love for those who would soon reject him. There's no sign, young person. There's no sign of vengeance. There's no sign of hatred. Only a desire to help people. And they're going to miss their opportunity. So this is such a moment to me in history. The long-awaited king of Israel had come. As most of you would know, he didn't come the way they expected. They wanted a king to come and reign. They wanted to deliver, to come and set them free. But he came as a humble servant. He came as a healer of broken lives. He didn't come exalting himself, building himself up, making a name for himself, trying to create a following. He came to be a servant. He came riding on a common beast. Not just a common beast, but a borrowed beast, a borrowed animal at that. Verse 11, if you look, be there. Verse 11, the last verse of our text today says, And Jesus entered into Jerusalem. He went into the city and into the temple. And when he had looked round about upon all things, so he goes, into the, he goes through the gate into Jerusalem. He goes into the temple. And when he had surveyed the area, he looked round about upon all things. And now the eventide was come. Now it's late in the day. He went out unto Bethany with the twelve. So he, he removes himself back several miles to Bethany after evening came and he retired with the twelve. Now... We'll take up here in our next lesson. But the following day, Jesus is going to return to Jerusalem. Now as we bring this to an end, folks, let's think about this. Because I think there's a lot to consider in this passage. First of all, we think about the fulfillment of prophecy. I always like to point that out. One of the greatest testimonies to the accuracy, the authority of God's Word is fulfilled prophecy. Things recorded... Hundreds of years before they happened, happened exactly the way God said that they would. The second thing we are reminded of is the sovereignty of God. Nothing surprises God. He knew exactly where that donkey would be, exactly where he'd be tied up, exactly how they would be addressed for taking it. We're reminded of the resolve, the commitment of Jesus. For one thing, he would never allow himself to be crowned prematurely. I mean, he was not about getting a name for himself. He was committed to his purpose. And his purpose was to go into Jerusalem and eventually die for our sins. We see the way he sees his critics. The way he sees the lost. The way he sees the blinded, spiritually blinded. The compassion he has the love he has for people. I, I don't hesitate to tell you, I know if I was in a similar situation, I wouldn't be thinking about hurting people, I'd be thinking about myself, about what's about to happen, about what I'm gonna go through, but not Jesus. This, and by the way, this ought to remind us of how we ought to look at our, our city, our community, those around us, with compassion, with a desire to help people, with a burden for our community. He wept, openly wept, matter of fact, if you look at that word that says that he, he wept, it wasn't just shed tears, you know. Sometimes, sometimes I'll shed a tear and I'm, I'll be able to hide it. You know, nobody can see it. This, was like, this word means sobbing, weeping, in compassion for them. Another thing we see in this, young person or adult, think about this. We saw how people missed, and we see this often in the Gospels, how people missed a great opportunity. An opportunity to meet Jesus. An opportunity to know Jesus. An opportunity to be saved. And you know what? Not only do we see that in the Gospels, we see it here, we see it throughout the Gospels. But let me say to you today, we see it in everyday life. People miss opportunities. They don't realize they're blind to it or they're deceived about how urgent it is. And I say all that to say this today. If you're here today and you don't know the Lord, you're not, you've never been saved, you've never personally received Christ, the Jesus we're talking about is a historical figure, no doubt. But more importantly, He is a personal Savior. He died for us. He went into Jerusalem to go and be mistreated, to be maligned, to be beaten, to be whipped, and eventually to be nailed to a cross. And why did he do that? he, He didn't just do it because they made a mistake. That was what he intended to do. Let me make it very personal. He did it for me. And he did it for you. And I ask you this question today. Do you know him? I mean, do you have a relationship with him? Have you been born again? Is he your king? I mean, he is king. He's always been king. Here we see him crowned or coronated or recognized as king but is he your king is he your savior you know as we read this we see people that were so zealous so enthusiastic about him they unashamedly honored him they praised him but there are also those in the crowd who denied him they didn't recognize him which are you today Are you an enthusiastic follower of Jesus Christ? When I see this, I read this, I study this, I preach this, it just makes me aware of how important it is that we take advantage of the opportunities that God gives us. And right now is one of those opportunities. To praise Him, to love Him, to worship Him, to obey Him, to identify with Him. But also, if you're not saved, to trust Him as your Savior. I challenge you today. You say, well, how would I do that? You don't have to get baptized to be saved. You don't have to join a church to be saved. But you must believe on Jesus Christ to be saved. You can do that right where you sit. Often, people need someone to guide them. We see that in the Bible. We're here to help you. If you're here today as a young person or as an adult, and you say, well, I, I don't really know that my sins are forgiven. I don't know that I've been saved. Today, we're here to help you with that. Most important decision you will ever make is to put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And I'll be standing here in a moment. You could come right to me and say, Preacher, could someone spend a moment or two with me and just help me understand this? And we are here to do that. Or come to me after services and say, could someone talk to me about this? Be the greatest day in your life to come to know the Lord.